Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CrocCast podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And today I'm joined by Mr. Graham Webb, a crocodile researcher and a key figure at Crocodile's Park. Graham, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I want to start us off how we start every show and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you first got into reptiles and kind of your career up to this point with them. Well, I, I, I'm not... I guess I worked on reptiles in the 60s uh, when I was doing my university degrees. And then when I did a uh, postgraduate work, I worked on reptiles. And pretty much the first position I had was to join a program that was had started up in the Northern Territory on saltwater crocodiles through the University of Sydney. And so I was... Um, uh very thrilled at the opportunity because really to work seriously on crocs as a a scientist you need a lot of resources because you know crocodiles you you're dealing one for something under a hundred grams to something up to a thousand kilograms and it's not the sort of thing a biologist can really do with a canoe and a pair of binoculars and I'd had a lot of experience at field work around Australia and elsewhere by that time, by the time I finished my PhD. And so it was an opportunity to really get into pioneering research with crocodiles throughout the hunting period up here for saltwater crocodiles, which was the heavy hunting was from the end of the Second World War to protection in 1971. Uh, they'd really, there were very, very few left. You could fly all the rivers and not see one. But there were still little patches where the population was recovering when I started work. And it, most of the basic natural history even had not been studied in any depth. So it was a remarkable period for for me and for any biologist because it's real pioneering research where every day you see something and you start asking questions wow what's that oh i haven't seen that before what what's what's it doing why is it doing it you know there was just a huge uh, it's often pioneering research is really addictive and it's um exciting it's like moving into a darkened room and switching on the light that for the first time you're starting to see things that nobody else has ever really written about or, or known about or understood and the hunters of course had built up a lot of knowledge about crops but it was their observations were often correct but their interpretations of those observations were often not for various, you know, because they, they're not really trained biologists. And the other part of this that was important was that between 1973 and 1976, I was based largely in Manangrida in the, in the north coast of Arnhem Land, which is a huge Aboriginal reserve. And the Aboriginal people in Manangrida at that time had often only come in from the bush in the 1950s and 1960s so 
they were very traditional in many, many ways, were incredibly skilled bushmen. As a, as a biologist, you just, you're just in total awe of some of the skills that these people have. And so I spent a long time working with them, getting to know them. Like, I worked very closely with them and got a real understanding of what traditional people are about. And, and that's been with me ever since. So that's the history in a nutshell. Like, when I, well, it's not really, I guess, after, after uh, publishing a lot on saltwater crocodiles, I left that program and joined as a consultant, there was no university up here in those days, the Parks and Wildlife, and was able to, as a consultant, was able to work on freshwater products. So within, by the mid-1980s, I guess, I had a lot of experience with two species of crocodile that were quite different, and that put me in a, an unusual, well, an almost unique position Globally, there were very few biologists that had this tremendous opportunity that I had had combined with, you know, I was quite prepared to work seven days a week and 14 hours a day. It was, it was you know, I think it must have been ADAH or something. It just suited me perfectly. So it's sort of gone from there. It transformed from that pure biology to management which I'll go into later because saltwater crocodiles are, are great when there's none around and nobody has to put up with them. But if your conservation action works, you've got a whole new suite of problems that biologists just are not trained to handle, you know. So it, it, it's, it's been an interesting, uh, an interesting period of time. So uh, you also play a key role at uh, Crocodilus Park. You want to go over a bit of the history and park and what it does? Well, yeah. Um, in, in, the, in the 1990s, we uh, built Crocodilus Park. Largely as a research and education centre, but outside of government. And... Um, for many years since then, we've done research there. But we, it, I guess the income comes from from tourism and uh, when we were into uh, crocodile production type research, uh, we would get some income back from the animals. But now it's just the costs of research are just so high that we've sort of had to pull that down a little bit because we're, we're spending way too much on... Uh, satisfying curiosity than looking after our best interests, you know. Yeah. So, but, you know, the, the, the story in understanding saltwater crocodiles here is to understand how management issues became so much more important than the biology. You know, that when, when saltwater crocodiles started to recover, it was very obvious from the survey results because unlike, say, sea turtles, sea turtles, you don't see the one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, you know, when they often monitor sea turtle um, 
populations, they tend to look at nesting females or something like that. But that's obviously, you know, it comes when, once you start to get an increase in nesting females that are maybe 20 years old or 25 years old, there's a whole process that's been going on behind that with the one-year-olds, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. Now, with crocodiles, you can see those when you do a survey. So you don't just sit there waiting until something happens with the adults way, way, way down the track. You can see what's happening. And with saltwater crocodiles, like a male in the wild doesn't mature until it's 3.12 metres, you know, 11 feet long. So as the population started to recover people were seeing more and more crocodiles everywhere they went unless they had happened to be there in the 1940s and yet the paradigm of the day coming from many scientists was they were still going extinct they were still endangered they were still and then that's okay, but we're a long distance up here in the north of Australia from the southern centres, and where it's good to perhaps to um, follow that line of reasoning down in Sydney in your two-bedroom unit, it's not good when you're isolated in the Northern Territory and suddenly these very large animals are becoming more and more common. and then. I guess things came to a head in 1979-1980 when we had two people killed by crocodiles, two people badly mauled by crocodiles, and just when um, we got self-government and started to build tourism, especially fishing is a very big deal up here, uh, one big crocodile started tipping over fishing boats with, with people fishing in them and at night time and, you know, they'd swim to the shore and in terror and it would stay beating up the boat. So it became, um, everyone in tourism was saying, God, you've got to stop this. No one will visit the Northern Territory, you know. So crocodiles became, started to become persona non grata amongst a lot of people. and. That was, you know, it was hard to know how to how to solve that problem because they are dangerous animals. Like a big saltwater crocodile, if you get grabbed by a saltwater crocodile that's four metres long, well, there's pretty much a 100% chance you'll die. And they're not like, I guess you see... Predators are funny in conservation. You see all these people that are... I don't know, feeding sharks or patting sharks underwater and all this, you know. If you, saltwater crocodiles, uh, if you dived off the bridge in the Adelaide River, which is about 50, 60 kilometres east of Darwin, and started swimming, there's a 100% chance you'll be killed. It, it, it's a matter that it's going to happen in five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I don't think you'd get over 15 minutes. So you're dealing with something, is that you can't sugarcoat something like that. Um, it's a reality and you can't, 
there's a, there's a very big danger in lying, which a lot of conservationists tend to do all the time, is 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 basically embellishing. Well, they're misunderstood or they're this or that. The reality is that they are a very serious predator, and you need to take uh, really be careful in what you do and the management of the wild populations is quite a wicked problem because you've got to take crocodiles out of some areas but try to keep them abundant in other areas. So, for example, here, every crocodile that comes into Darwin Harbour is taken out because that's where most of the people live. But then other areas, you only have to go a short distance out and crocodiles are abundant. In, in most areas, they're abundant. And so it's a, as a management challenge, it hasn't got a lot to do with biology anymore. It's all to do with how you manage people and how people manage people and how people manage crocodiles. And it's a people, it becomes a people thing rather than a, a, a biologist's um, day in the lolly shop you know yeah yeah as an american it's kind of quite a bit different from the our main native crocodilian the alligators which you know it's a fairly yeah. large animal that lives right alongside big human populations and big abundance and fortunately for us it doesn't really seem to take too much interest in us as a food item i mean there's a rare exception but yeah it's completely yeah. different beast than a salty they're quite a different animal. We've, we've got some alligators here at Crocodilus Park, and they're just quite a different animal. And and they're much smaller, and you know they they're just different. I, I don't know. They're just they're easy to handle. They're easy to grow. They're easy to do everything with. You know, yeah. relative to saltwater crocodiles. Saltwater crocodiles are really. Uh, I don't know. They, they get really big, you know. Yeah. And that's the problem. Yeah. American alligator is kind of like the golden lap of crocodilians, from my experience. Yeah, they're, they're pretty, pretty quiet. Yeah. Like some of the little crocodiles in the world, like the Philippine crocodile. Yeah. The Cuban crocodile. They're really, I, I, I always think they're, they're more of a handful than saltwater crocodiles. But I mean, they're just. You know, they're, they're really much more sort of defensive and aggressive with each other and with anybody else, you know. So Fully these, complex. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, I don't know what it's all about, but it's probably something to do with the, you know, they had to be like that to survive in the habitat, say, or, you know, or something. I, I don't know. I don't understand it, but they're certainly aggressive, you know. Yeah. Apparently aggressive. You know, they'll climb over fences to get to the crocodile next door. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So you're talking about uh, management practices, and that stems off something that I've been hearing a lot of recently, which is a uh, Queensland's proposed uh, crocodile call. Uh, do you want to weigh in on that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, can, I can weigh in on that a little bit. Um, yeah, in the, the the Northern Territory is different than Queensland, right? The Northern Territory yeah. is 
a big state. It's 1.3 million square kilometres. I don't know how that is relative to some of your states, but I'd say much bigger. And it only has 240,000, 250,000 people in the whole state and 30% of them are Aboriginals, many of them traditional, living on communities. So Darwin at the top, which has about 130,000 people, is the seat of government. Our seat of government is here, right in the Crocodile Territory. And uh, we're isolated from, from everyone and really quite different to a lot of people. So what we did when the dilemma we had in the 1979, 1980 was how, well, the dilemma I had at least, was how are you going to make people or encourage people, we don't have to make them, to continue to support the recovery of the wild populations. And it was it was really a challenge because everyone was getting upset and the direction that we went was as they have in Louisiana. That was really the model we used was to try and find ways that landowners who were really facing the brunt of the problem because they're out in remote areas and some of the the farms here might be 100,000 or 200,000 square kilometres. They're huge, you know, and they use uh, helicopters now to, you know, round up cattle and stuff. And they're very isolated. Crop numbers are building and they eat cattle and they eat people and they, they, they're just very difficult to live with. So the direction we went was to promote a sustainable use, largely on ranching, largely on collecting wild eggs and then having a farming industry to basically hatch those eggs and value add them so they could sell a skin into the market. And that all started about 1983 and it was, it's been very successful in the sense that the collection of eggs was not accompanied by any replenishing of the wild population. It wasn't necessary. Um, the population continued to recover and we think it's now about 80 to 100,000 animals strong and we think that's probably what it was historically. Uh, we think we're very close to the historical abundance in most areas, you know, most, in most of the Northern Territory. And the, the rationale behind that is that landowners could sell the eggs to the farms and get a return back from, from the crops. Not a great return, but, you know, today, you know, if you have a, a little patch of swamp with, um, say, 20 nests in it, well, you might get, you know, twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars back from that for doing nothing. Now to get thirty thousand dollars today from the bank every year for no expenditure, you you've got to have probably a couple of million dollars invested on on that current interest rate. So um, it 
I I wasn't you know I wasn't sure it would work when when this was all started, mind you. I, I was looking very carefully at what had happened in Louisiana, which did seem to be working very well. But I was surprised myself at how over time that financial benefit, like engaging people in the programs, instead of them being the enemy and having to try and force landowners to put up with them, which they, they're not going to do anyway, uh, it certainly did help, you know, it, it did help. And so it's fostered the recovery. And what was even, I think, more important is that something like 60 60 plus percent, or even might be 70, of the eggs come from Aboriginal lands, remote Aboriginal lands, where economic development is extremely hard to do and where the people have no real interest in agriculture. They were never farmers and, and it fits in perfectly because it means that it gets income from natural areas of wetland and you do not have to drain them or farm them or grow rice or, or, or grow domestic animals. And, and so that's been really successful. And now there's a trend now towards getting satellite farms out in these really remote communities where they can now take the raising, they do the incubation. Incubation on communities started in some, you know, 20 years ago, but now the raising of the animals to a stage they can come into the bigger farms can be done on site. And so it, it's it's leading to some economic development that's all associated with crocodiles, which all puts value on crocodiles. And so by and large, the public, even though they... They often don't like crocodiles for obvious reasons, you know. Um, fishing is a big activity up here and, uh, you know, crocodiles are always a worry. But people, the community as a whole, sees crocodiles as being an economic asset to the Northern Territory. We still lose maybe one person a year, uh, usually to misadventure of one form or another. You know, someone's had a few drinks and decides to do something that they wouldn't do when they're sober, or sometimes it is just accidental, you know. That, that, uh, uh, but the public, by and large, accepts that as being, you know, just an unfortunate. There's probably more people killed with cattle, cattle farming each year, you know. So, so we have a good situation. Queensland's different. Uh, Queensland has a highly populated east coast and the crocodiles are mainly in the north of the state and they've built up the same as the crocodiles here and they have the same problem that some individuals wander out and go wandering down the coast and come into areas where the majority of the people live so the, the the program queensland's become more pragmatic about handling those animals there's plenty of animals right so um uh 
there's plenty of animals around, so that's not a uh, it's not a conservation problem. But they're proposing now to be able to take some of these animals out that are moving around the coast. There are a lot ready to do so, but I think they're talking twenty or thirty animals a year or something. It's it's not a cull as such to reduce the populations. It's the taking out of animals that are. Uh, uh, likely to hit people, and so I can I can understand exactly what they're doing. You've just got to be pragmatic. You you can't. Yeah. The worst thing that can happen for saltwater crocodiles is an attack on poop, because then the rest of the people that are sitting there without much, um, without any dependence on crops. Queensland's a big state, so whoa, what the hell are you guys doing? You know, you're bringing back these predators, and why? Why are you doing it? You know, so yeah, it, it, it's some people, but I personally think the people managing the Queensland problem are very pragmatic and very efficient, very skilled, and that they're trying to do the right thing. But but clearly some of the tourist operators in some of the little rivers and creeks where they, they're worried that, that their crop might go out the river and down the coast and get um, taken out. But I, I don't know how you solve that because you, it, it's a balancing act between, you know, if you're not careful, you'll lose all. Yeah. You don't want to away great white sharks. Great white sharks have gone the opposite direction. They put all his effort into raising the numbers of great white sharks. And now an immature great white shark can be four metres long, you know, so people are getting snaffled all over the place. I think we've got the highest rate of shark attacks in the world by far. And I think we lost nine or ten people last year or something. And and people are still saying, oh, don't, don't touch the shark, don't touch the shark. You know? You're looking like a seal. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's pretty hard. We're, conserving predators is hard yeah. because if your conservation works, well, you're going to have more predators and then people are going to have to put up with it or you, 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 you take control methods to try and keep them down in areas where there's a lot of people activity. It's not... Or one or all the other. You probably need some sort of, you know, and, and it's not like they they were depleted and what's come back is a massive juveniles, but they get up to four metres long, an immature one, you know, so it's still, you know, a lot of people are getting snaffled are probably getting snaffled by immature um, yeah. white sharks. So there, there's a lot of problems and fish, people fishing down there now, have great trouble getting a fish to the surface without it being hit by a shark. You know, like it's yeah. so something's got to give somewhere on the line. But I don't know. Crocodiles, we we got in early, and and the public uh, up here is with us, part of everything. And they're not the you know they're not the enemy. Their 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 views are taken very seriously, and the industry now generates enough money. That everybody sees it's beneficial in a remote area. It's hard to do things that you can't do more economically 
down south, but crocodiles are something that we can do and are doing very well. Yeah. Yeah, so Queensland's more or less just taking out a few animals every year that are basically labeled as potential problem animals, more or less. Yeah, and I, th- I think they, their wildlife people need the flexibility to, you know, someone's going to make a decision on this, and, and it's a decision on which people's lives can depend. And, okay, it has some downsides, but in the end, it's not going to make any difference to the conservation of crops in Queensland. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're recovered extremely well, and... Um, they're not as abundant as in the Northern Territory, but they don't have the the big meandering rivers everywhere that we have right up in, you know, right. Yeah. They never did that. They never did in Queensland. A lot of the crops were, a lot of the crop hunters reported a lot of the rivers just never had a lot of crops, and, and that ties in. One thing with crops that's, that we learnt very quickly was that, the abundance of crops in different rivers is. Um, hang on, I've got, I've got to answer that. I think. Right. Yeah, I can just cut this and edit it out. So, so uh, let's see here. Um, you mentioned you did some work with uh, uh, freshwater crocodiles as well. You want to talk about that? Well, yeah, fresh freshwater crocodiles are. A completely different animal. They're they're much smaller. They're endemic uh, to Australia. And I always remember one guy who was doing his PhD on them with us. He had a T-shirt made. He said, "Australian freshwater crocodiles, the thinking man's crocodiles," <laughs> because everyone gets wrapped up in saltwater crocodiles. But at that time, when there still weren't a lot of adults, there were a lot of questions you couldn't answer with saltwater crocodiles. Whereas freshwater crocodiles had been, they'd been hunted quite intensively, but only from 1959 to 1964 when they were protected. So they had had a lot more time to recover, and so there were a lot more adults in the population. and. So it gave you a chance to look at a, a population where you could get big samples of adults and, 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 you know, the sort of we did the sort of things with freshwater crocodiles that we did with saltwater crocodiles. But by that time we had the experience and we knew, you know, when biologists often rush into something like this, you're so wrapped up in doing it and catching them and measuring them and all this sort of stuff. But... When you start, um, when you start analysing the data and looking at the errors you've made or the mismeasurements or something you didn't write down, you you start to realise, oh wow, I should have put much more attention into the making sure, you know, not focusing on the the razzmatazz of catching, you know, catching crops and this type of thing. Yeah, and so the freshies, we we're able to do that. We we're able to be much more disciplined and experienced. So the results we got back were—it uh, was very little known, actually. There wasn't much known about freshwater crocodiles. So we were able to do the same things, but do them in, I think, much more detail and much more, uh, much more accurately to get a, a better idea of 
of you know what they eat, when they eat, and, uh, yeah, growth, movement, dispersal, harming, reproduction, just everything you know that you, you, you could look at. So we got, I think, through the nineteen eighties, we got a a very sound view of what freshwater crocodiles were about as a model and they're, they're a different one saltwater crocodiles nest in a mound like alligators and they nest during the wet season and they up here we have a distinct wet season and a distinct dry season that we have an average of about 1.4 meters of rain a year but probably you know 90 percent of that falls between November and April, May. The annual average rainfall for July is zero. You know, it's just perfectly dry. So you have a very dry season and a very wet season. And saltwater crocodiles nest in a mound of vegetation and they nest during the wet season. And they start nesting in October. They don't finish nesting until April, May. And the peak is usually in December, January. Yeah, freshwater crocodiles are the opposite. They they nest in a hole in the ground. They nest during the dry season, and they nest within a three week period, a two three week period. In in uh, right now, they they're nesting over the last two weeks, and it, to me, it's a bit like alligator does. That. Alligator has a very short nesting period, and I think with freshwater crocodiles, like the, the temperature and the rainfall are coming in at both ends and it's limiting them. So they've only now got this very small window that they can nest in and survive. If they nest later, the wet season will come and all the eggs will be floated. If they nest earlier, it's too cool. So they're quite different. They freshwater crocodiles spread out in the wet season when the floodplains flood, and they come back into streams when the wet season waters come back in. They feed up on on the fish and things coming in from the plains. The little fish they only eat little things the size of your thumb. They put on all their weight during the wet season. The dry season, they just hang out there, waiting in permanent pools. So a stream will dry down to a number of permanent pools. And they they lose weight. They don't feed much. There's not much food there. And they, they mate in May, May, June, way early. And then it's, it's not until... August that they actually lay their eggs so that they have a, a brief period of activity for early in the dry season and they must store the sperm until that time when they lay and then the wet season rains come in November which is when they start to hatch so my point is that the environment is closing in on them it's 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 there like, I don't know what sort of, you know, how many thousands of years you um, calculate these things, but they seem to be limited now. But 
whereas saltwater crocodiles have such a broad nesting thing that they're probably very secure. And I'd say that's probably been a factor in alligators. Alligators have a very pulse nesting. You know, there's not long that yeah. they can nest in. And what's more, one of the interesting things about alligators is that their development is neotinous, which, which means the first part of development of the embryos is at, say, 30 degrees is very similar to crocodiles. But the second part, is really hastened. So what you get out, you get an animal that hatches after 60-something days, whereas the equivalent animal for crocodile would be maybe 85 days or 90 days. Hmm. So, And the crocodile comes out with all its teeth and everything else, not the alligator. The alligator comes out with a lot of yolk, and it's still basically a, a young animal. So it's squeezing down you know, everything to, to, to survive so you know catch up before it gets cold yeah yeah so in in, in a, a long-term evolutionary point of view you know there's crocodile fossils everywhere everyone digs and i think this sort of nesting thing may have played a role in in when when they where they could survive and where they couldn't you know yeah yeah so uh, the way you described that, that freshwater crocodiles' uh, movement patterns throughout the seasons, especially uh, them coming back from spread out wetlands into concentrated pools at a dry season, kind of reminds me a bit of uh, Yakari caimans in the Pantanal in South America. Yeah. But, how... it, 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 it's similar. It, 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 the Pantanal and the Llanos are similar habitats to the wet, dry tropics up here. We've got distinct wet seasons, everything floods, and then dry seasons where there's no no uh, uh, rain. And as you've probably seen in the last couple of years in the Pantanal, where things have really dried during the dry season, there's been massive congregations. I've never seen anything like it, like thousands of animals on top of each other and a high mortality and animal cannibalism. And, and that's a... You know, they're, they're just caimans generally are, are, are remarkable animals. You know, they, they, they seem to mature in a very short time. Not sure why they must get access to abundant food. They're, 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 I once heard them described as the rats of the crocodile world. You know, they're, 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 they're just an amazing production animal in terms of biological production, you know. It's tremendous work done on the Pantanal caimans. Yeah. So uh, in between freshwater and saltwater crocs, uh, which one would be your favourite? Well, I, I don't really have a favourite. I'm not emotionally. I don't think I'm emotionally attached to crocs. Like, no, I, I, I just... Uh, yeah, I don't really have a favourite. You know, I like all crocs, and yeah. uh, <clears throat> I'm more interested in what we know about them and what we don't know about them. And and you know, there's some wonderful people around the world that are working on crocs. You know, there's, there's tremendous diversity of people. Like I 
chair the IUCN Crocodile Specialist Group and have done since 2004. And it's got 700 and something members right across the board. There are people that are scientists out in the field, there's scientists in the lab, there's, there's educators, there's farmers, there's industry people, but everything to do with crocs in the crocodile specialist group we have in the one group. So if we want to know something about trade issues, I can contact people in the industry and the trade and find out. It, it, it's, it's because what's happened worldwide is sustainable use has been embraced in the whole conservation management approach to many crops in many different countries. And it's, it's not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination because anything that is, is, is used as commercial resource has its own commercial problems, you know, but it has clearly been successful and it has helped, helped generate resources for crop conservation and management. You know, it's very difficult in many countries to get for a government to allocate resources to an endangered animal. You know, it's just very difficult because they've got all sorts of other priorities in cabinet when they discuss where the money's gonna go. So if you have two equal species of equal endangerment and one has the potential of generating income, well, governments will tend to support and that, that, I think that's a, another thing that's often forgotten that, that many of us, for many of us who appreciate the intrinsic value of wildlife and just love wildlife for what it is, uh, for many other people, the, the instrumental values for wildlife are very important. And when it comes to governments allocating budgets, making a firm commitment, to conservation and management, the the potential for sustainable use has been a an important element of that. Yeah, yeah. The one universal key to get people to care about something is to put a dollar sign in front of it. Uh, it it's you know, and it's a like a lot of people think it's horrific that you use animals, but I just. I just have trouble with that whole logic, you know, because we, you know, animals are wonderful and you don't need to disrespect them to use them. But I mean, the Aboriginal people are born into a, like a moiety or a totem of particular animals and they love animals. They, they, have all sorts of stories about the animals. They revere them in many ways, but it doesn't stop them uh, eating them and enjoying them and, and using them. And, you know, you don't have to have this or that. You can have both, you know. But, you know, it's like today, it's it's um, a lot of it is a lot of people. You know, we're, we're now dealing with a world that's 60% urban. You know what I mean? Yeah. And those people, in many cases, have a very, very limited 
understanding of nature and where we fit in nature, you know, and, and so they're easily, um, they're easily misled, I think, by philosophical positions and ideologies and, and of course, those ideologies raise a lot of money from urban people. It's another whole complex arena that crocodiles have been, crocodiles have been under attack by animal rights activists and they, um, uh, I, I don't know why, it, 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 it's what I mean, there's no doubt that the, the industry has contributed to conservation in, in many, many, many areas, you know, not all, but many. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, outside of crocodilians, do you uh, do any research with other reptiles or do you like do any herping in your free time? Oh, I don't much now. Like, I'm 74 now, so I don't feel like, you know, running around in the field yeah. too much. I, I still got just not that long ago uh, to go up and we had to catch a five meter croc. And I, I like still to do that, you know, something about that that's neat, you know. Yeah. But, I don't, I don't agree with that much. I love it. I, I think research is, although I've done a lot of research over the years, but you still consider myself very much a, a student of science. You know, I think science is, if it's practiced properly, is just the most powerful problem-solving tool we have, you know, and that whole idea of finding something new, you know, something a lot, of, a lot of science today is sort of done in a laboratory with DNA samples or something. Yeah. I often joke when I started studying them, they didn't have DNA, you know, because it, you were out in the field doing that type of work. But, you know, I don't know. There's it, 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 still interesting things come up about crocs that, that are basic, basic biology that just, Fascinating, you know. Oh, I don't. I know what you mean. That's like most fascinating thing about crocodilians. How they just seem so perfectly adapted to the way they live. Yeah, you're you're right, and and that that um, for most crocs, you know, excluding sort of the ones that live up in rainforests and things, but for the for most crocs, they're all very similar in the 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 their design and that design has such a long, long, long antiquity. You know, they're they're really an amazing predator. Like they just lift the top of their head out and they can see, they can hear, they can smell, they can orient, they can sense movement, they can pick up vibrations. And it's like putting a little periscope up on a submarine. And then they can go down, they can cross a river with the tide running or the water running and come up exactly where that sound was when they went down on the other side. Look, it's an amazing thing. And and whatever it is on the other side, you usually can't see still how big the predator is. Yeah. Now look, it's a it's a it's a an amazing hunting strategy that's obviously been very successful over time 
as you know, they're really a water's edge predator. And um, you know, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting. Yeah, but uh, you made a, a comment about how majority of biology, the science research is like DNA and stuff. Uh, me and my one friend made this joke one time that majority of wildlife scientists you see these days are people who couldn't make it in uh, molecular science. Well, yeah, you know, it's powerful stuff, and it's 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 we're using it here to determine, you know, where crops are coming from that are found yeah. in different areas, and and uh, we're looking at. Um, a guy here, or a number of people here, are working on on regional DNA to work out where crops are coming from because it's just amazingly powerful in that direction. Like one of the things we're able to find is that the crocodiles coming into Darwin Harbour are mostly all coming from the west and not from the east. But if you look at the the map of the Northern Territory. Um, we we think now that a lot of the crops coming across the coast from the east may be continuing because they come across and then they're either going to have to take a 90-degree turn south or they're going to leave the Northern Territory altogether. And we're interested in that because in East Timor that's nearby, there's been there's a huge rate of increase in the number of crops and the number of fatalities. You know, they're losing maybe one person killed a month. And we think we, we're just about to go up there again to get more samples that some of these animals causing the problems may be animals that are coming from here. There's some other things. We've got oil rigs between here and East Timor, and crops turn up on those oil rigs. So you've got to say, well, where are they coming from? You know? Yeah. And so, so the DNA stuff is critical to to being able to pin down whether that's occurring and um, perhaps the rate at which it's occurring. And then that then leads to, right, well, how are we going to manage this situation? You know, because it becomes a management problem. The, the, you know, it's often, often in conservation, you'll have animals hatched in one area, like with sea turtles, they're hatched in one area, but then they get caught and eaten in another area. People say, well, they're eating our sea turtles, you know. But in this case, if the crocodiles are hatched here and they're eating people in, East Timor, well, you've got to turn that all around and say who's responsible. You know? Yeah. So, so it, it, it's an interesting issue. It's the first time I think that I know that that's happened, where the country's put so much effort into conserving and successfully conserving a major predator, but then the predator may be moving offshore. And, um, you know, where people, where, where, the per capita wealth is very low and where people have to interact in the water much more time, you know, much more. Yeah. You know. And it, 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 it's an interesting scenario because in East Timor there's a, a very strong culture 
of crocodiles, the good crocodile that, that created the Allen and people revere crocs and, and there's a very strong cultural attachment so that if you are attacked, it's often assumed that you're a bad person, that you did something bad. So even non-fatal attacks are often not reported because the assumption will be that you did something wrong. You know, but yeah. it, it, Every country is different. There's no, there's no silver bullet. You know, you've got a management is so much more complex. Wildlife management is so much more complex than wildlife biology. Yeah. Because wildlife management is not just about dealing with the animals, but you've got to deal with all the people variables. And, you know, and that's a challenge because yeah. you, it's no good marching into these countries saying I've got all the answers because I come from this country, you know. You've got to work out how to tailor things to local people and 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 completely respect, you know, the local people. Yeah. So uh, these crocodiles you see, you know, either moving offshore to Timor or moving into Darwin Harbor, are they often like a similar demographic, like say, uh, young adult males, or is it all across the whole spectrum? Look, I think there's more males than, but they're often younger ones. I think that it seems there's still a lot. Like although we were very, very active in research in the seventies and eighties, uh, in the nineties, you know, it was very interesting. The focus on research was toned right down by government. They sort of at that time, I said, well, crocodiles aren't endangered, so they're not a priority anymore, which I never thought made a lot of sense, but but that was the essence of it. And we still don't know a lot about the movements of crocodiles. You know, we know there's some tantalising data where we do know that a lot of animals from, you know, from research in the 70s, that a lot of animals from the rivers that have breeding habitat, where there's Say, say breeding rivers, the first year they stay reasonably close, even the second year, but then things there's a lot more movement. A lot of animals seem to move out of the systems. But then they don't accumulate in in the rivers without breeding habitat, or, or not very much, no, nowhere near the number that are lost. So we're not sure, we're still not sure what happens here, whether it's, um, they really head out to sea or or, or or what, you know. They're pretty hard to see at sea, but, you know, there's some real big questions there, you know, and then some come back. And one of the things in these tidal rivers that always struck me as interesting, you know, crocs have stones in the stomach, you know, and but if they're raised in muddy floodplain rivers where there are no stones, they don't have stones in their stomach. But so you'll get animals, smaller animals, up to maybe, you know, 1.2 metres, 1.3 metres, they don't have stones as much in their stomach. But if suddenly you get animals that are two metres long and they just they all got stones in their stomach. So hmm. it looks like they, they may well have moved out of, their natal habitat to somewhere and come back, you know. Yeah. So many 
questions, so many questions still to be answered, you know. Yeah. Uh, so what are your, uh, what are some big questions you hope to one day answer with your uh, research with them? Oh, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any big question, you know, like it, it, science is about being able to predict. It's all about being able to predict what happens. Yeah. And, and I like to, to see the more you know about them, the more you can predict. And the better you can predict, the better you can manage, you know. So I just like to see, you know, more and more uncovered about crops. Because the whole, that's about wild crops, you know, the whole realm of what happens in, in the captive raising of crops, the incubate. We've done a lot, a lot of work on incubation in the early days. And we understand that pretty well now, I think. Uh, it wasn't wasn't well understood, and um, but in the raising of animals and the captive husbandry and things like this, a lot of questions in there that about crops are, are continuing to be researched, but largely by on farm type research. But there's some quite stunning findings coming. Out. It's the wild crop research that has gone down. Yeah, because the farm research tends to be funded through primary production type things, whereas wild research needs to be funded by, you know, people, uh, conservation type agencies that typically have, have you know, their, their budgets spread across a lot of species and, you know, it's something yeah. some question that appears really important to me, uh, doesn't stack up against the lesser speckled reed wobbler or something that's having a problem somewhere, you know. So it's hard to get the resources really to do just basic biological research on wild crops. Very hard. Yeah. Um, speaking of wild crops, I've heard that uh, cane toes have a very different effect on freshwater crocodile populations versus salty populations. Yeah, well, it seems to be. It seems to be that salties are much more um, resistant to their toxins. The story with freshwater crocodiles, unfortunately, is still quite confused. Uh, there are some areas in which uh, saltwater crocodiles uh, Cane toads seem to be associated with a significant mortality of animals. And there are others in which cane toads have been responsible for a significant mortality of small animals, but not necessarily big ones. And maybe it's maybe it's the size of the toad versus the size of the crocodile. You know, if you're a uh, 25 kilo freshwater crocodile and you eat a cane toad it's that size that maybe you can handle it but if you're a three kilo freshwater crocodile and you eat a cane toad that size you get killed we certainly found in the daily river where we had a history of spotlight counting before the program was stopped 
there was always a very large number, very large number of small crocodiles, you know, support supporting the adults. And so one lot of surveys that only looks at the adults during the day has found no change. But spotlight surveys have indicated these younger animals are all, all gone. A lot of them are gone since mm. the cane toads arrived. Mm. And, and there's pictures of small cane toads with uh, small crocs dead with cane toad pulled out of their stomach. So we have an area where in, in the McKinley River where we, we started marking crocodiles there in 1978. And that's where we did all the foundation research and we marked them through the 80s and some into the 90s. But when the cane toads were coming, we went down and really went right through the area about 2001, 2002 and marked the whole, re record the whole system and marked them all again. And then the cane toads came through. Now we're we're not we're not sure because there's never been the resources available to go out and recatch them, which is a, 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 it would be a tremendous study. But you know you you've got to get the resources to do it because you know you've got animals that marked as long ago as '78, and you're finally going to be able to work out what longevity is, you know, because I'm sure some of those bigger animals that time will all be gone. And since then you've had saltwater crocodiles move into that area too. The odd saltwater crocodile has moved upstream into those areas. So that would be, uh, that's one of the studies I'd like to see done, you know, someone go out there because there's massive historical data that allows you to interpret correctly what you find. And uh, that'll that'll be really interesting. One one issue that was very clear was that with freshwater crocodiles, the major predator on the eggs, took like 60 or 70% of the eggs, were varanids, uh, varanids guldi and varanids panoptes, I think it's called. And they were there all the time, you know, scouring over the banks, you know, digging up yeah. the eggs. When the cane toads came, came in, the varanids were really hit hard. Well, I mean, those animals had just about wiped out a lot of areas by cane toads. And one study we did showed that suddenly there was a major boost in the survival of eggs. You know, it went up like 400% or something because the main predator had been taken out by the cane toads. But then you're not sure. So you have a boost in recruitment, but you're not sure that is going to, yeah. you know, what's going to happen there. You know, it doesn't necessarily follow that these things go through in little blocks, like builder blocks, you know, like that. Yeah. The, the, sometimes people think about population dynamics as, as like a game with Lego blocks or something, but it's not because... There's all sorts of other interactions that take place. That if you, but with salties, we know that in years in which a lot of hatchlings get into the river, the survival rate is very low. In years in which only few get into the river, and that's largely due to the pattern of flooding, uh, the survivorship is very high. 
So there's a density-dependent influence on hatchling survival. And that's why we think the egg collection program has had virtually no effect on, on the recovery of the population because yeah. just, you know, everything balances. If there's a lot of hatchlings, the survivorship's down. If there's not many, it's up. And then crocodiles, of course, are cannibalistic. And um, so there's plenty of flexibility there. That's a whole interesting area because it's not well understood in many reptile populations. Yeah. Uh, That actually reminds me uh, with, you know, varanids, you know, primary nest raiders kind of going away with a higher egg survival rate. It reminds me of something I recently heard out of south florida with you know the invasive burmese python population uh it's yep. basically a, all about has really taken a put a big dent in the local uh, uh raccoon and opossum populations which were the primary nest raiders so we're actually like seeing higher uh sea turtle egg survival and american crocodile egg survival rates now yeah well that would not surprise me at all because that's the sort of thing that happened here you know and it just like I guess the thing I've one of the things I've learned overall is that we often started off thinking these crocodiles are very fragile and they need us to you know go out there and champion their conservation. But in actual fact, they're they're, they're unbelievable tenacious survivors. You know that. Yeah, they outlasted the dinosaurs, so. Oh, and, you know, like here, as far as we can calculate, the biomass of saltwater crocodiles was reduced by 99%, the biomass. And yet they recovered fine. You know, they're, they're amazing. They've got all these inbuilt mechanisms of density dependence and things that, that uh, and you know it was really interesting because the Aboriginal people used to always say that before the white man arrived, which was in their areas only in the nineteen fifties, that they would find a nest, kill the female, eat the female, take the eggs, eat the eggs, and next year they'd come back and there'd be another one at the same place. And I used to think that was some sort of statement that, you know, I, I, I just sort of couldn't understand it. But now I understand it, that what happens is as these populations recover, there's a lot of females that are in these rivers that are the size of an adult female, but they're not nesting because they don't seem to have some social right to nest by other dominant females. But if you take them out, those dominant females, they'll start nesting. For example, I remember one time we took from an area with all these females and you said 10 to 15 nests a year in this area. And there was about 50 animals in the you know, seven, eight, nine foot bracket. And we took 20 females there, put them in captivity. They, within a year, most of them had nested like 80, 90%. And yet in the river, there was the same number of nests. 
So it suggests that what happens, and there's a, a wonderful experiment done in Florida with alligators where they surveyed a swamp over three years and got a different number of nests. I think the highest was 99 or something. And then over the next three years, they took 99 animals out and the number of nests was constant at about 85 each year. So it seems that what happens in nature, at least with some of these crops, is that females will reach the size at which they can be mature, but the context within which they are stops them nesting until a space is provided for them. And that becomes interesting. You know, it may even happen with sea turtles, I don't know, but it may be more common than we realise amongst these types of animals. Yeah, how important the social hierarchies play in who gets the right to breed. That, 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 yeah, who gets the right to breed, yeah, yeah. But those sort of issues we just don't know much about, you know, and it would be, be so fantastic to research them because there's such a large amount of information available on these things. It's not as though you're starting something brand new. So you can really, you know, you're at an advanced stage in in being able to ask the right questions and hopefully answer them. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, do you have any particular uh, favourite or memories or uh, favourite moments from oh. all your adventures? Well, yeah, there's been all sorts of moments. <laughs> Obviously, if you work with crocs for long enough, there's all sorts of all sorts misadventures. Remember, yeah, misadventure and close calls, and and you know, things. It's funny when you when when you have a real close call with something like a big crocodile. Like it's funny how it affects you. You know that you, your voice changes and. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's it's yeah. I've had a couple of incidents where, where um, especially in the early days, I think the first was when, like the program I was in, one of the goals was to develop efficient radio tracking devices because there weren't any available at that time. Um, we had a transmitter on a, a crop that was you know, about four metres, I suppose. Um, we went down to the river. They were very scarce at that time. You know, catching them was a nightmare because they were hidden. They were survivors from the hunting period, still well hidden and very wary. So we went down through the mangroves and we could see this crocodile on the opposite side of the river with the transmitter on. Um, so... Okay, well, well, we climbed up in this tree overhanging the water and I splashed in the water. I'm telling these other two guys, stay still, stay still. And this animal went under and it came up right underneath us. And the three of us all realised normally as soon as it saw a person, it just bolt. Most crocs did. This was the first time that. And suddenly this thing came launching up the tree like this. Ah! 
it frightened the hell out of us. Then we had to get out of it. It was, it was a funny story. Then we had to get out of the tree and we had to cross a bit of water to get back to the land. But everyone was talking in real loud voices. And you, you bush, I just I don't know why. You know, so I had a couple of incidents like that in the early days where, where you, you start to realise firsthand that, you know, because even nest defence was something that was never happening in the wild in those early days. And um, I remember in 1980, we went out to this area, nesting area, um, two females attacked these guys at nest. And it was such a, it had never happened before because they were, the wild ones were so wary that they just, you know, it overrode their maternal instinct. But, as the recovery took place, a lot of animals, you know, were starting to mature that that hadn't lot hadn't had any of that experience. So that, that there's lots of incidents, yeah, yeah. They, like they to handle them, and they're big animals to handle, and they, and they're dangerous, and you've got to be you've got to be very, you know, you see a lot of TV images and jumping all over them and all that. You don't need any of that stuff. It 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 can be done very quietly and calmly and yeah. and and uh but it's always a challenge to catch it move a big crop you know there <laughs> big strong animal yeah yeah well uh i've certainly had a, a great time uh, talking to you it's been quite quite an experience no, that's okay. It's nice to talk about some of these issues because they're not, there's so much hype goes on about crocodiles that it's, um, and it's not usually the people that are at the front line, at the coalface of managing them that are talking about. You know, a lot of people are very wise about crocs, but they don't have the, the responsibility of trying to find answers to the problems you know a lot of yeah. it's about embellishing problems you know because today that's where the the money comes from so we try to be as pragmatic and as straight as, as we can be you know just our nature yeah well, okay right. okay okay take care thank you bye-bye